Good evening, and you are very welcome to this week's episode of Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. I'm your host, Ashling O'Rourke, and each and every week we talk about all sorts of issues that are related to the environment. And most importantly, we try to talk about how we can all make small changes in our day to day lives that will have a lasting and long term impact. I know if you have listened to Let's Go Green for a while now, you may recall that I've mentioned that I live with invisible disability. I have a number of autoimmune diseases and sometimes mobility is, a th- my mobility is not great. And when we hear conversations around climate action and the environment, I frequently have to ask the question about well, are we thinking about people with mobility issues in this conversation? Are we thinking about people who live with disabilities and the economic and the poverty that comes with the fact that people who live with disability have more costs in terms of living and medical expenses? And Global Action Plan have launched a new report discussing just this topic. So I thought we better get Hans Zomer back on the show to discuss this and to discuss why exactly they've decided to investigate this issue. Hans Zomer, of course, is the CEO. Hans, you are very welcome back to Let's Go Green. Hi, Ashley. Thanks for having me on the show. So first things first, Hans, why did you decide to do this report? What was it that piqued your interest? Well, I, I, I think your introduction was really important because I think it illustrates what, why we decided to do this study. Um, we're an organization, we're, we're looking at environment and behavior change. And uh, we are very proud of the uh, our ability as an organization to work with groups and people and communities that are not necessarily at the forefront of uh, of a lot of the public discussion. So we were born as an organization in Ballymun, an organization, uh, an area of Dublin that has experienced quite a lot of, uh, you know, um, underprivileged, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And since then, we have always tried to work in uh, and with communities that are being overlooked. And um, to us, then, it seemed extremely logical that we would not just look at geographic, uh, um, you know, uh, marginalization, but also economic one and and social ones and groups that are most often being marginalized, being forgotten about, tend to be people with disabilities. Now, uh, as you you will have in, indicated, that, um, there are many different types of disability, and there are very different ways in which people and society respond to them. But what they all share is that they are people who basically are, by and large, being marginalized. And um, we also found that uh, a lot of the environmental groups that we talked to and a lot of the people who are very worked up about climate change never mentioned the word disability. So those two things, those experiences that we've had as an organization prompted us to go, well, let's look into this a bit more in depth. And I think it's fair, that point that you've made, like I've been running this show now for well over 12 months. I've been a broadcaster for a very long time and interested in environmental issues throughout that entire period. And it's rare to hear environmental groups discuss the practicalities of living with a disability and like the need for most people with a disability in this particular country to have access to their own accessible car or their own transport system. And 
Like just, and this is only anecdotally, but last summer when we had that spell of unusually hot and let's be honest about it, uncomfortable weather. In the evening times, I used to go to whatever, wherever I was in the country, I'd try and get to the water and take a dip to cool myself down because it was the only way that I could get a good night's sleep. I ended up one evening in Malahide in Dublin. Now, Malahide is not an area that I'm in any way familiar with, but I was hungry. So I ended up in the little village centre and saw that they had pedestrianised a main street there and they had all these um, seating areas for different pubs or restaurants or cafes where you could sit outside, enjoy the good weather and, you know, have an outdoor, a dinner al fresco, something we're not really um, all that familiar with in Ireland because, you know, the weather and all of that. But on this particular street that had been pedestrianised, there happened to be a health centre. And I just, to be honest with you, it's rare nowadays because I've been in this industry for a long time. It's rare for me to be genuinely shocked because at this stage, I kind of feel like I've seen it all. But I just kind of stood and with my jaw ajar, looking at this going, how does somebody who needs um, to be driven to a doctor's appointment, how do they get in the door? If they can't, like an awful lot of elderly people, people in wheelchairs, people with mobility aids, they're not going to be able to park at the other end of the town and walk to the doctor. They might want to be able to. It's not that they don't want to, but frequently these simple little measures, we see these conversations happening and yet it just galls me hands at times that the blatantly obvious, it just doesn't seem to occur to people. No, really interesting that you're raising that, Ashley. Uh, but um, I think there are many instances in Ireland that we can find where, as a country, we're not doing well to look after people with disability. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what surprised me, though, was also that our, our research showed up the other side of things, is that disability groups in Ireland had not considered climate change. Uh, so what, what we did was we did a study that was sort of looking at the international uh, academic research on the issue so that we knew what we were talking about. And then we did uh, interviews with people, uh, both from people that were working in the disability sector and people that were working in an environmental slash climate sector. And what was striking was we expected the uh, the, uh, the disability groups to tell us, that, look, uh, we're not being included in the climate conversation. But what was also striking was that the the disability groups themselves had not asked themselves the question yet, well, how is this going to, how is our current reality, which as you just discussed, is not great for for people with disabilities in Ireland, but how is this going to change in the coming years as climate change is going to hit harder and harder? Mm. Uh, so, you know, basically we found that in asking the question, uh, we, we prompted more debate and reflection really than that we got actually a proper answer, so which was a really interesting finding in itself. And that is really interesting because I think we all need, like it's all very well and good for me to use my time on air to shout and roar and complain about the system and how banjaxed it is. Excuse my French. Um, but we do need to take a look at our own behaviours and how we communicate about climate change and how we can contribute to measures to mitigate against it. So... After doing this piece of work, Hans, what's your take on people with disabilities and the role that we can all play in supporting people with disabilities while also trying to mitigate against climate change? 
Well, I think the first step is what you're doing. Uh, you're promoting on your show now a, a reflection on it. Because I think most of us would be in a, in a situation, as I said, that we haven't thought about how the two issues interact. Um, and uh, it's it's very interesting. That I, I worked overseas in, in overseas aid for many, many years. And uh, I, I worked with people in disability, with disabilities in, in Chad in Central Africa. Um, and... Uh, you know, I was reading a research, a piece of research about how countries in all over the world, all the UN and member states, how they are planning for climate change and how to respond to it, how to respond to floods, droughts, all that sort of stuff. And what was interesting is that the richest countries in our in the world were actually the worst in terms of including p- specific plans for people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Many of the developing countries they did it because their the aid donors are, have been asking for that for the last 10, 20 years. So they have plans, in, uh, you know, uh, specifically tailored at how to look after people with disabilities, whereas rich countries haven't, even though they've been demanding that poor countries do so. The second thing that I noticed, and that was uh, even more depressing, I suppose, was that, okay, so there, there's the responses that you have to have in, in case of, you know, extreme weather events. But there's also the bit about, well, how can, and that's what you were raising there, well, how, what can each of us do uh, to, to mitigate and to prevent further climate change? And nobody is uh, including people with disabilities as actors in, in that conversation. We're spo- whenever they're mentioned, and as we said, they are hardly mentioned, but whenever they're mentioned, they're mentioned as victims. Mm. They're never mentioned as actors. And that really has to stop. We have to stop thinking of people as just being vulnerable and and uh, fragile and you know uh, pitiful. We actually are going. To, these are people. These are people with rights. People with brains. People with you know they 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 people have with voices opinions. and people. They have voices exactly. And we if we valuable contributions that we and they can make. And I think perhaps one of the problems in Ireland is that we think of disability as being something blatantly obvious. We think of disability as only being something like, for instance, if a person's in a wheelchair or perhaps a visually impaired person might be using a cane when they're out in the street or um, they might there might be something different about their appearance. But if we, in reality, all of us, we hope to live to an old age. But if we live to an old age, that means we're going to experience some level of disability in our lives. So this is something that is going to impact the vast majority of us, unless tragically we die young. So this is not just for a small group of people. This is actually for all of us. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. You started this conversation, Ashling, by asking me what brought us to this this research. Um, I have had the benefit of, uh, as a teenager, spending just two weeks in a wheelchair, but it was life-changing for me. I knew it was going to be a, a short time, uh, so I, I didn't mind as, as much. <laughs> but I noticed that I, people were treating me differently the minute I sat in the chair. Um, you know, people would talk to my brother who's pushing the chair as opposed to talk to me. Be, you know, I always in the third person. How is he doing? You know, and like, I'm here. I'm right in front of you. I am not, you know, I, I, I am still a person. Just because my legs don't work doesn't mean I can't talk, you know. Um, and the other thing that I found, and that, that as a teenager, I enjoyed being in the wheelchair. My, me and my brother, we were doing stunts, etc. Uh, again, because I knew it was only <laughs> there for a, while, a short while. But 
uh, I noticed that people would really frown on me, you know, having fun with the wheelchair. Mm. Uh, I was supposed to be an object of pity. I was supposed to be a victim. I was not supposed to be a person who likes to laugh or likes to do things. And that experience as a teenager has really marked me that I felt, hold on a minute, like I am lucky. Uh, this is a period in my life that, uh, you know, will pass. But if I was born in a wheelchair, how would I feel about being treated like this? Because essentially people are discounting you just because, you know, you, you, you know, you're immediately in a, put in a little box and uh, you, your point is really well made. That's, that's a wheelchair that's very visible. Uh, what about people who have less visible um, uh, disabilities? So, you know, we have a lot to learn uh, as, as people uh, about how we can be much more inclusive and be much more open and aware that, that, that we all have different experiences. And certainly that climate change is going to affect us all. Uh, we're lucky in Ireland that the, the effects so far have been relatively modest uh, for all, most of us. But we have to start thinking about how it will affect us and how it will affect people differently. And we have to also start thinking a bit more uh, beyond, you know, oh, this is about floods, this is about droughts, and but but you know, things, the weather being hot. This is about what fundamental changes it's going to bring to our society. And then you mentioned uh, people with disability often are, are, are less well off. Uh, less mobile, etc. So, how are they going to be affected by an increased, uh, by increased prices of food, increased prices of insurance, uh, less, less accessibility of uh, cheap fuel and energy? How are they going to be uh, affected by the increased pressure on the health system? Those are all the sort of questions that we need to start talking about very, very soon, and we need to do that in conversation with people with disabilities and their representative organisations. I was, to be honest, I was I was surprised to realise at um, an event that I was covering for the show that for the SEAI um, Warmer Homes grant scheme, that the eligible social welfare payments, when I saw the list, I spoke to somebody there who had been, because she's married, means tested for the Warmer Homes grant and then discovered through the process that she was on the invalidity pension, so sometimes referred to as the disability pension. And... She, because the husband had a job, she's not eligible for the grant on that particular. And I'm thinking she's at home because of a medical reason. So therefore, she's more actually likely to need a warmer home because there's some medical problem here. And yet she's the exact person who's not eligible. So is there sometimes a lack of a joined up thinking between government departments in Ireland on these issues? Most definitely. Uh, and it's not. It's easy to blame the government, but it's not just in uh, government circles as well. As I said, our research showed that there, that most organizations that we talked to had not really considered how the other issue that they're not primarily mm. focused on is affecting their work. So really, we do need to, we all need to do a lot more learning and we all do need to do a lot more listening. And, and really, uh, I, so I think your show is a really, really good starting point. Hopefully, the people listening in will, uh, you know, they might know somebody uh, with a disability, might be somebody with a disability, and it's really uh, we're encouraging the, you know, all of those people to to just speak out, like I, and just say maybe you don't have to know everything, but just say, hey, I'm worried about this, or I have a question about that, and let's just start, you know, educating ourselves and each other on on both climate change and the rights and possibilities of people with disabilities. 
is it then on disability groups to start talking more, being more vocal about the impact of climate change on people who live with disabilities? So like, I think it's fair to say, and and I hope people are not, but maybe people are fed up of me mentioning the cost of living crisis on the show. But, you know, if you have any medical condition, that means that you're going to need to go to see doctors. You might need to pay for medication. You might need to take time out of work. So financially, you're automatically at a disadvantage as a result of having a medical condition. And then if you're trying to manage a household budget and the cost of food, just even just your groceries, if that's skyrocketing, it's hard for everybody, but it's harder for people who, who live with disability. And do we need to hear from people in these organizations just illustrating these points? Absolutely. I think you've summarized what, what I would say uh, is a key finding of our report and is that we, we just need to hear the voices of people with disabilities about their, I need to hear their experiences, need to hear their worries, and need to hear their ideas for what we can do in the future. Okay. Are there any practical learnings coming out of your report? Is there anything that you'd like us to take on board from it? That's a really good question. But um, yeah, I suppose, you know, um, and I'm in danger of falling into the trap that you mentioned, like people tend to think about disability as a people with a, a wheelchair or uh you know, blindness or so. Um, but, you know, just go back to a couple of years ago when we had the Hurricane Katrina in America and a lot of people were stuck in their homes and there were evacuation plans uh, being uh, drawn up and they completely did not uh, think about, you know, mo people with mobility issues. Mm -hmm. were asked to go to uh, muster points uh, and this being America, they were supposed to be driving to those muster points, etc. Um, so people with mobility issues who had no access to a car were be just basically overlooked completely. And uh, a lot of elderly people were, died uh, needlessly uh, in, the, in the floods at the, after the, the hurricane. And then a couple of years later in America, they had, I forget now, they had another hurricane, other flooding situation. And no lessons had been learned from the Katrina uh, disaster. And I, I wonder... Like, uh, we know, obviously, the flooding that we've been experiencing in Ireland has been of a very different scale. But I do wonder, uh, you know, uh, our crisis response plans, what, uh, do they even mention specific uh, you know, actions to be taken to ensure that, that you know, people with disabilities are looked after uh, in, in emergencies? Um, so that, that, that's a very practical one, I suppose. Um, the other that's one a is, good point, Hans, because like a lot of those emergency response plans are actually instigated at local level. They're they're run by the local authorities, the, the county council. So, do you know, it's a good question. If And we're going to be facing in the next 18 months or so, well, actually less, in the next 12 months, we're going to have a local election. So perhaps we need to start asking these campaigners as they're canvassing us, as they're knocking on our doors, what plans do we have in place to in to include people with disabilities in the mitigation measures against the climate change? Yeah. And then secondly, I think in a really interesting conversation that I've never heard yet is the one that I mentioned earlier about, well, you know, what contribution do people make to uh, the greenhouse gas pollution? You know, uh, so we are all contributing to climate change by the, the small actions or the, the large actions that we take in our daily life. Um, 
a lot of that is very hard to avoid. Um, but you know, are there ways in which we can change our lifestyles, our uh, the way we organize our society, so that we reduce our, our carbon emissions um, urgently? And and I spe- specifically then, well, you know, what does that look like then for people with disabilities? Is that you know, because you mentioned mm-hmm. car dependency. But what are the options? Uh, what can people do? Um, you know, like, as I said, people with these are not just victims to be looked after or in terms of crisis. But they are also people, uh, agents of change. And so how, what change can we drive through working with people with disabilities and with disability organizations? A lot of the conversation we've been having about cutting down on car usage seems to be on preventing car access. So by pedestrianising main streets and thoroughfares in towns and cities around the country. And last summer, I was lucky enough to take some time to myself for a week in Mallorca. And the the town that I stayed in was heavily pedestrianised. But they had a lot of these bike hire shops where you could, and people are familiar with, you know, go on holidays, you hire a bike. They had these little, um, very adorable animal themed scooters for kids. But the same shops also hired out mobility scooters for people who might need to get about in pedestrianised areas. And like, I don't know if I arrived, say, into Shop Street in Galway and all of a sudden realised, oh, God, my mobility is not great. I could do with a bit of help today. Like, there's no facility in Ireland that I'm aware of where you can just hire a mobility scooter for a couple of hours in the same ease of access as you can hire a bike. And we're all familiar with seeing the bikes. That's a really great example. And it's um, an example of the sort of creativity that we need. You know, mm. discussion in Ireland about climate change has been very negative. It has all been about, oh, how expensive it's going to be. And, you know, we're not going to be able to do this or that and the other. And so, you know, we have to change that. And our farming is going to be affected and our roads and blah. Can we just flip it and look at how can we actually use this crisis as an opportunity to rethink how we organize our society? Because to me, what you've just described in, in Mallorca Sounds like a brilliant place to want to live. And why can't we say to ourselves, let's try and make Ireland a brilliant place to live, which is also, uh, you know, a better in, in relation to our relationship with the with the pli- climate and the planet. So it's not about not having to give up all kind of stuff. It's actually about rethinking and being creative about building a society that works for everyone. Uh, because I think all of us, we have to admit that the society we've built in Ireland at the moment does not work for everybody. There are too many people being left behind in in, in all kinds of ways. So let's use this opportunity now uh, to to build a new new Ireland where you know we can really truly say that no one is being left behind. And Hans, I think if there's one thing you can say about us as a people, Irish people, we are a very creative race. So we need to just use that creativity. But Hans, I'm afraid we're well out of time. Thank you so much for joining us once again on Let's Go Green. I, I'm sure I'll have you back on um, at some point in the future. But if people want to find out more about you and your work, what's and even the report that you guys have conducted, what's the best way for people to find out more about you? Um, I suppose the best way is for those of you who have access to the internet, go to uh, globalactionplan.ie. Um, and uh, the web, the website, the new section of the website has the report. Um, yeah, and otherwise, uh, I, I suppose yeah, there's the old phone number, but I can never remember my this for my organization. The <laughs> okay, globalactionplan.ie so. is the best way to go. Globalactionplan.ie and CEO Hans Omer, thank you so much for your time today. 
Midlands 183. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103 with myself, Ashling O'Rourke. Well, what did you make of our conversation with Hans Zomer of Global Action Plan Ireland? I thought it was an interesting conversation. And to be honest, I'm delighted to hear some group is researching the impact and the involvement of disability groups and organisations and the impact of climate climate change on people who live with disability and all the measures that are being investigated as part of mitigating against climate change. Well, after the break, we're going to be turning to something rather different entirely. We're going to be looking at the business of hairdressing. Now, hairdressing is one that done in the traditional method, if we let's call it that, it can have a significant impact on the environment, the level of waste produced as a result of a salon um, being in business, the level of water that they have to consume during the nature of their work and and um, all the chemicals that are involved. Now, look, I love I, I love my turquoise streaks in my hair. Um, this is not a criticism of the hairdressing profession or anything like that. But I, I hope you enjoyed the conversation after the break that I have with Lorraine Nocton. I really enjoyed chatting to her about how she and her colleagues have worked to make their salon in Maynooth in County Kildare not only no waste, but completely sustainable. So that's coming up after the break. Stay tuned. Midlands 183. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. And we're going to go to something entirely different now for the the last part of this week's episode of the show. And I'm joined now by Lorraine Nocton of Obi-Wan Hair in Maynooth in County Kildare. Lorraine, you are most welcome to the programme. Thank you very much, Ashley. Thank you for having me on. Now, people who know me, Lorraine, know I love my hair. I, I, I spend quite a bit of time minding my hair because in my mind, if my hair looks well, I feel happy and everything else is just easier. And I know I'm not alone. I know many of the women within my own close circle of friends are mad about getting their hair done. The men in my life all take pride in going to get their trim or their 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 um, their shave, whatever it might be. It's something that I think in Ireland we're very um, used to doing, minding ourselves and going to the hairdresser. You know, we like to look to put ourselves together well and, and to feel good about ourselves. But it is an industry that just by the nature of what you do between shampoos and conditioners and, and dye, you know, that there is chemicals involved. And that might mean that, you know, it's not great for the environment and Maybe depending on how you run your business, you could also have a lot of waste as well. You have decided for your salon to do things in a more sustainable, environmentally friendly way. How did this all come about? Uh, well, obviously during COVID, we uh, had a lot of time to think because we were shut. And uh, the first time I ever saw fish swimming in the canals in Venice or no small over Asia. So I said, oh, God, what are we doing for that? Like, seriously, what are we at? And our industry, as you say, is notoriously bad for creating a lot of waste. So I started looking into it and we're a partner with L'Oreal for a very long time. And their sustainability missions are actually second to none. So I started to look at what they were doing on a smaller scale, obviously, it's founder at my side. I mean, it's what could we do and what was generating most of our waste? 
Um, I mean, there is no plan B. So we have to look after what we have. We have a responsibility to the next generations because if we don't look after what we have now, there will be some work for them. Uh, so we started small. I basically looked up what sustainability meant because I hadn't a clue. I think that a lot of people are afraid of it because they don't know what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, and do things very expensive and they don't know what to do, where to start. So that's what I did. I, I started to investigate into what was causing our main carbon emissions. Um, so we I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Larry. There is, there's a lot of fear around this. Okay, yes, we're afraid of the consequences of doing nothing, but we're also, and I'm stereotyping here, but in Ireland we can be slow to change because, you know, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. So you yeah. went, you, you did your research, but mm-hmm. for you it's proven really successful. So what have you uh, done for a, a yeah. It, that that you can feel like you're making less of an impact on the environment. Okay, so well, first of all, we started by just changing over to green green energy suppliers. We changed our lights to LED lights. Instead of turning on the air conditioning, we opened the windows. We turn off our hair dryers when we're not using them. We turn off lights. We use less water. We turn our back thermostat by one or two degrees. Um, we changed over to using biodegradable towels because you use cotton towels and it's not on. Like it can take thousands of years for those to biodegrade or decompose, decompose because there's often uh, synthetic um, products in it and polymers in it. Also, like a typical size salad would use over 60,000 litres of water a year to launch your cotton towels. And then they're providing chemicals and the yeah. microplastics that are going into the water. So the towels that we use decompose within 12 weeks. So it uh, stops all of those nasty chemicals going into our waterways. Um, I'm sorry, when you say towels, you mean like like I'm used to getting my head wrapped up in a towel like I would use in the bathroom at home. Are you talking about something s- similar to that? No, no, they're biodegradable towels. They're like a napkin for all intents and purposes, but they are very absorbent. They're great. Okay. We would never change that. Okay, interesting, because like I think like I'm I'm thinking now by how you're describing that, that it will be like a, a hairdressing version of a kitchen towel. Yeah. Not far off it, but it doesn't fall apart. Like it's very, it's very durable. That's the fact. It's very good to clean the dogs, uh, dry the dogs at home. If people want to take them home, they can use them again and again. Uh, so we're all about people reusing things. You know, people think sustainability. Oh, I have to recycle. But recycling is actually the last point. You should see if you could replace, reuse, not buy it in the first place. You know, all of these things before you actually go put it in a recycling bin. Um, I mean, we're talking about hair. I mean, people go, sorry, you don't throw our hair into landfills. You don't. We reuse your hair. Now, tell me about this one, because I have seen videos on, on of of oil spills, for example, yeah. where mm-hmm. hair that's been collected from a hairdressing salon is then somehow collected together and used to absorb oil from right. the top of the ocean. And I just, it blew my mind when I saw it. I saw it about eight or nine months ago and I've been dying to find well basically you since <laughs> to have this conversation so tell me how does this work so basically any hair that's cut in a salon whether it's coloured hair or natural hair that's fine basically it, it, what happens is it's cut, it puts into a big long sausage like a pair of tights and if you think about the oil in your hair like your hair so it holds on to the oil in your hair just think about the concept so of course if you're sweeping that across an oil spinach it's going to absorb it uh, but also it's used to make um, storm maps. So the drains on, in um, the storm map, when the storms are pulling all that debris down the street, it's all rushing out into our oceans. The storm maps actually catch it and that's made of hair. Uh, the latest one is um, to be used as fertilizer because it's full of nitrogen. 
So there was a study carried out about putting hair on plants. So there was plants with hair on the top and the bottom of the soil, ones at top, one at bottom, and then obviously, you know, this, the plants with no hair. There's about an eighty percent difference in growth of boilage between one with no hair and one with hair on top and bottom. Like it's amazing. It's full of nitrogen. Now, I wouldn't put on edible plants if the hair is dyed, so we would just suggest not edible plants. So we give people hair going home. I mean, it's bizarre. You can wait pay to get your hair cut, but we give it back to you. You know, I mean, it's fantastic. Um, the other one you love is in the foiled hat uh, is it we use for colouring hair, highlighting hair, right? So all this oil creates such beautiful work and then it gets rolled in and it's just awful. I mean, tinfoil, I mean, it, I just want to cringe. So what it is now basically is Green Salad Collective, who I'm a Green Liberty for, I'm an advocate for them here in Ireland. They're an amazing company. And um, they take back the dirty foil and they clean it ethically. They, they remove the colour and it's done properly and they remake the foil. We buy it back in. So we're buying back in the recycled foil we've already used. One year of 50 goes to a charity every box we buy to feed the homeless or for haircuts for the homeless. And then the carbon emission from the delivery is actually offset. I mean, it's just an amazing story. I actually think that's fabulous. Uh, and we because look, we've all seen, if you've not set foot in a hairdresser, well, well, I'd be shocked, to be honest. <laughs> if you're Irish, you've set foot in a hairdresser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we've always, if you've not had maybe highlights done or colour in your hair done, we've seen at least pictures mm. of those foil, those little slips of foil, yeah. like one person's head, like they're mostly, yeah. yeah, yeah, easily like, and that's just one customer and you could have maybe a hundred people in a salon on a day, like, you know, so that's, that's a lot of waste. And I would imagine then, like from a business perspective, you, because you're not throwing these things out as much or you're not throwing out as much items mm -hmm. into the bin, your waste removal costs, have they gone down? Yeah, but it does cost, obviously, for each year's grid sign collective. But just to correct you the point there, we actually send zero to landfill. Wow. Nothing. Nothing from our salon goes to landfill because all of our retail products, all of those are made from recycled plastic because we work with L'Oreal. And we also then offer a refillable system so people bring back the bottle, we refill it for less, 25% less, so there's less going on. There's not, no plastic bottles allowed in the salon, like as in drinking bottles, we could put water filter in. So girls have their refillable bottles that are allowed by single use bottled water. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just it, the small things you can do. I mean, we offer plant milk instead of cow's milk. Well, we offer both, but we encourage plant milk, blaze-based milk, because it uses an awful lot less water to convert plant milk than it does cow's milk. And that's only from, you know, starting to research and to talk to people. As I say, Green's Art Collective do so much for it. And um, yes, it's expensive. Theoretically, what's expensive? It, it runs to what? What, what, does pe what do people consider expensive? Well, okay. Put it the, I'll put you the well, question back. Okay. Well, I'll put the question back to you then, Lorraine. Like you have been in business in Maynooth for what? 20 odd years. What? You've made these changes now since the pandemic since the thing we try not to talk about. Um, <laughs> but that's what, you know, that's what, 18 months of changes maybe? There yeah, about. easily, yeah. There, thereabouts, right? So, are, and I don't want, I don't need to know your, your accounts or anything like that, but are you still able to make a profit in your business? Are you still able to pay the salaries? I'm making more money than ever. Okay. Yeah. Uh, for two reasons. One is people want our seeking out sustainable salaries and sustainable businesses now. Uh, I'm an 85-year-old changeover from her salary. I should go to for the last 40 years because we're sustainable. 
Um, we charge two euros extra on our bills with our clients to go towards our sustainable initiatives. So it's not costing us anything to do it, but we then if we have a profit left from our sustainable green fees, we actually donate that to charities. So every year we pick a charge. We also do a fundraiser for that. We we support our local um, kids from Mothers Love the football team. We support Down Syndrome um, kids. We've looked after Suicide Survive. Uh, we're now getting involved in math because communities is um, an autism friendly town. So we're getting involved in that. I mean, you know, sustainability is also an awful lot more than just about the environment. It's also about the people in it. Mm-hmm. When we came back from that word we don't want to mention, uh, we decided that the life work balance is really important for the team. So they work all turn of weeks. So they work Monday, Wednesday, Friday, this week, or Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, next week. They work 12 hour shifts. So they work three days a week, but they work their entire week in that. And then they have every second weekend off. So they have Saturday, Sunday, Monday off every second weekend. And I have girls with me that have kids and they say they've no mom guilt because they get to work and be who they want to be and, and earn their wage, but also they're with their kids for five days or four days a week or whatever it is. So they're delighted. So, you know, we introduced um, an employee assist program where they all have access to counsellors, they have access to financial advisors, fitness advisors. So we take it very seriously looking after the mind and the health of our own team as well, because not being... Staff, happy client, happy client, happy me, happy me. I mean, it's a like circular economy. You know, we have to have to keep into this. So it's all about the environment, the people. But the profit, yes, we are making money. And we cut our costs because we, well, we've been involved with net zero and, car- and change by degrees with InterSkinnet um, to assess what carbon emissions are being created by businesses. We've been involved in this with the body problem with Blaria as well. So I know what my carbon emissions are every year and I know what I have to do to reduce them. And I know what's causing them. And I think I can't reduce with like traveling to work because some of the girls live in the middle of nowhere. I can't get unless they drive. So I cannot reduce their carbon emissions. So we actually offset that by planting trees. So we've reduced it considerably, but it's understanding what's causing the harm that we're doing. Once you understand that, it's easy. It really is. Even Green Salad Collective is a huge help and like people should get involved. And Salas, they don't have to do everything in one go. Start off with one thing. Yeah, it's the one change that you make. One change, give it a go for a month. Make mm-hmm. one change and give it a go for a month. Reflect on whether or not it's worked for you and then look at something different. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, how many of us have started on the 1st of January, right? <laughs> no sugar, um, no soft drinks, no, no, no this, no this. I'm going to exercise every day. And how many of us actually last for the 12 months of doing that? Like very few. It's, it's too much. I mean, we introduced uniforms, uh, as I said, and like that's to reduce fast fashion because fast fashion is so damaging to the environment. And, uh, you know, it's made from recycled materials and that sort of thing. And we no magazines in the salon. We have iPads with up-to-date magazines. We don't use business cards. We have QR codes. Don't say save you money. Like, it could be about 35 euros, I think, approximately, to my magazines. It's going to be that a week. And then, Lorraine, what about, like, say... Like, I know the hairdresser where I go, the ladies are all terribly stylish. They'll all wear black because in... In hairdressing, you're going to get bleach, you're going to get dye in your clothes. Even with the best will in the world, you're going to spill something. So I know they must be going through their clothes themselves and disposing of it very, very frequently, more so than a non-hairdresser um, would do. But what makes it then justifiable in your mind to pay for in- uniforms where that might now be a new expense that you didn't have before? Uh, because I like to go out to my team was the first thing and uh, they don't rent their uniforms because they wear aprons and they're brand aprons so 
win-win for me. And it's an all approach craft sevens branded either with Obi-Wan or Larry on it. Uh, but you've got to look after team because if you don't look after the people who work with you, like you, you won't survive, and you certainly won't be in business twenty-one years later making money. And all. And Lorraine Nocton has been in the business for twenty-one years, so if you can make it work, I suspect others will be following in your suit. Well, Lorraine Nocton of that sustainable hairdressing salon in Maynooth in County Kildare, um, OB One Hair is Lorraine's um, salon, although. By the sounds of it, it'll be hard to get an appointment there, Lorraine, if you're that busy. <laughs> but Green Collective is something that you think hairdressers all over the country need to investigate and, uh, and find out more about joining the organisation like you have. Yeah, and if they want to get in touch with me, I can get them in connect, contact with them. And also, I have a discount code as well. If people want it, no problem, just use the OB1 here and you'll actually get a reduction on your costs. So... You know, we're all about just doing as much as we can to help us. I mean, the biggest threat to our planet is the belief that somebody else is going to look after it. Yeah. It's a bit like if you're in the forest and you see the trees burning, you don't wait for somebody else to pick up the phone and call 999. You do it yourself. Yeah. It's definitely a threat. Well, Lorraine Nocton, um, I'm delighted that a mutual friend was able to put the two of us in connection for this conversation tonight. Because as I said, I have been um, looking to speak uh, to a hairdresser because I love getting my hair done. I've got I've got all sorts of colours in my hair, even though it's it's tied up today. It's a very humid day. <laughs> but, you know, I do, we are we, Irish women and we do have a particular love affair with minding our hair. And um, uh, we have a very a re- strong relationship with it. And I know many of us have been wondering about the environmental aspects of that. So it's great to hear that Irish hairdressing salons are finding solutions that this is that this work is happening here in Ireland. Um, so that's um, great hope for the future. Lorraine, thank you so much for your time. You're very, very, very welcome. No problem at all. We will be back after the break. Midlands 183. You're listening to Let's Go Green with myself, Ashling O'Rourke here on Midlands103.com. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks to Hans and Lorraine for taking time out to speak with me. I hope you enjoyed both of the very different conversations that we had on this week's show. I'm looking forward to next week where we'll be um, checking in with a Let's Go Green listener about the work that they have been up to. So um, stay tuned for that one. If you would like to come on air and talk to me about a project that you've been working on or or your thoughts on the environmental measures that the government is making or how we're doing in terms of climate change, I would love to hear from you. Please hop over to midlands103.com, click on the On Air team, look for my own name, Ashling O'Rourke, and there's a handy button there that lets let you send me an email directly. Um, otherwise, if you'd like to like, subscribe and even give us a review on Apple, Spotify or Google Podcasts, that would also be appreciated. Of course, feel free to share the podcast link with your friends and family. That's it for tonight's show. I am right out of time. So before I'm shot, I better get off the airwaves. Um, thank you for listening. I'll be back same time next week with another edition of Let's Go Green. Midlands 183.